Good day, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be. It's John Summers, the motoring historian, with his old friend from school, Mark Gammy. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing well, thank you, sir. Um, well, I did feel, you know, I should try and make the start of these things more dynamic. We Got do like one of my... Stuff. I, no, no, we should, like, hit with a punchline, you know? We should do, like, you know, instead of... Or we could do something sexy. What, that's what they do in the movies. I say what? We, we could do something sexy, like they do in the movies, you know? Have, like, a, a you know, Ursula Andress type. No, well, or, or, yeah, that, or like or like James Bond, where there's always, like, violence. There's either sex or violence right at the start to, like... That's true. ...really, uh, really get, get your attention. But that's just not my style, is it? I'm more Tristram Shandy, where most people never get never really understand the point of what Lawrence Stern was trying to say because he wrapped it up in such a difficult to unravel kind of of a package but you know maybe that's the message that you need you need to work hard at reading Tristram Shandy in order to get something out of it maybe that's the message with with me as as well that you know you tuned in to learn about the lucid and there's half an hour of drivel before I even mention it. And then what I say is really not actually that useful to, to helping you. It's just entertainment. I, I don't really know. It's been done um, before, man. But greater minds, James Hutton, father of geology. Bill Bryson wrote in his short history in nearly everything that the guy was a visionary, but uh, that even people who applauded him said his books were terrible. They were really hard to read. He took four volumes to take something he could have said way quicker in as arcane a language as possible and almost as unreadable. Um, but, uh, you know, he was the father of geology. So if you wanted to get the tips on, like, you know, early uh, views on uh, the world, then uh, you needed to plug through it. That is, but that is the interesting thing, right? That the, you tend to feel people who aren't involved in studying history tend to feel history is history and like the facts are the facts. But, but they're not. The, the, the facts of the Roman Empire are what Tacitus and Livy wrote down and what the archaeological record has, uh, you know, has has supported. So I'm not saying these things didn't happen and it's all like some big conspiracy theory. But but what I am saying is that, that you know, history is uh, um, blurred and nuanced and, and not, you know, and not accurate. And I was going to say something else and I can't remember. Well, historians got to make a living too, man. If it was settled, there'd be nothing to do with it. Well, they do say that about historians, don't they? That, that it's the only profession where everyone disagrees. If you had a panel of four historians, they would all disagree. And they'd all have like a valid argument and they'd all be friends about it. Can you imagine if that was the case in physics? Can you imagine that was the, if that was the case amongst law professors? Mind you, if, if that was the case among law professors, you'd have the government that we have in the United States at the moment, wouldn't you? But that is is, uh, is is a, a digression. Um, yeah. So in the news, so in my like, you know, being more structured and, and so on, we always talk about the 44 Teeth guys. Um, I've actually not watched any of their stuff to the Nürburgring recently on on like 90 sports bikes it's a bit too it's them riding my bike the kind of bikes I have the way that they should be ridden I think that's why it's uh it, it's almost like watching another man take your wife out for a meal kind of thing um uh, but I have followed um you and I've both been fiddling around on Twitter somewhat for uh for, for different projects I have followed um I encountered old Alistair Fagan, one of the 44 Teethers, um, 
apparently he was at Bristol Airport picking up Boothy. Boothy's crossing the road on his crutches with his one leg. Fagan stops to pick him up and gets fined. 240 quid at the airport fined for like, you know. Is that because you've got to pay to get pick people up at the airport now and he didn't? Uh, no, no. What needed to happen was he needed to go to the car park and Hopalong needed to crutch it all the way up there. And that was what Fagan was pissed off about. He was like, you know, it's one thing to be like, you know what, you can't all be pulling over and picking up at the side of the road. I understand that. But if what are we coming to when we're fining people who, uh, uh, you know. The bureaucracy does not care. The bureaucracy does not care, does it? So, uh, but but the fact that the guy's getting around a little bit is 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 good, you know. And 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 we should say we would talk about Boothy because we sponsored him um, the last TT that, that he went to. So yeah. uh, you know, we we uh, <laughs> we're somewhat invested in him. In where once there were two legs, now there's only one. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, he's going to go racing again, isn't he? Awesome, cool, like. Well, they always do, don't they? Yeah, they yeah, they yeah, always sure, do because otherwise, otherwise, you just look like you you were scared off. Um, whether you you, it's like it's like McGuinness, right? Is McGuinness the same rider now as he was before that fall in the Northwest TT? I don't think so. Well, he's quit now, isn't he? Or is he quit? Is he just quit for TT? Well, I <laughs> I don't. I I mean, I I, I really hope he does because because I don't think you can do it at half. They said on the last one that was his last one yeah. last year, um, yeah. and fair play to him. I mean, the guy's the legend. I, w- I watched Rutter lead off the last TTs, and I watched him be passed by the younger guys. And I was talking with um, the guys that I was watching with who were you know our age, like forties, fifties, and they were saying, and we agreed that the discipline for Rutter to ride in the way that he did. Well, obviously, completely within himself in comparison to the way that, you know, somebody like Dean Jones, is it the guy that with the pale blue, the the, the Yorkshire guy? Um, Could be. Jones, I'm not up to speed on all the chaps generally. But, but no, <coughs> the point is he, he rides within himself and and that's a bloke who's who's riding to, to get home rather than, uh, than than riding to win. And I'm not... not, not uh, Certainly not knocking him for, uh, for for that. So yeah, um, yeah. So good luck to him if he comes back and rides again, and I'll definitely sponsor him again. And and you know, for sure. Um, yeah, Godspeed, um, Matt Booth. Um, so I've got two new vehicles in the last month. Very reserved. Have we, talk- have we talked about them before? I can't remember. Um, I think you mentioned that you've got something. Is that 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 thing that had broken down? You sent me well, the one, one doesn't work, and I bought the other one because it works, and it broke down on the test ride. <coughs> yeah, just been in deja vu. I I know it was when I uh, so I've I've had that Derby moped, fifty cc moped forever. So just to, just to rewind somewhat, right? Electric mopeds are coming, aren't they? We were talking about electric bikes the other day. There's these Revel electric scooters in San Francisco. So I was like, you know, I tried one of the Revel scooters. It's governed to 30 miles an hour. Even if you lean over the handlebars, and <laughs> it won't go any faster than 30 miles an hour. I mean, what kind of, what kind of perversion of the two-wheel concept is this? A machine that can't be persuaded to exceed its natural top speed. Um, 
So with that thought, I was like, I've got to get a two-stroke moped. Like, this is going to be my response to these electric mopeds. So I, I did the only natural thing, and I bought from my friend John Garcia, I bought his Derby GP150, which, when, which was the fastest moped you could buy when you could last buy two-stroke mopeds in America. So it has like a Piaggio motor in it. Um, and it was owned by this Irish road race guy. And he put the exhaust on it and the whole thing, which was all fine and dandy. And it was really fast. But then John pressure washed it and it's never worked since. And it's it's over in the corner of my garage now with an auxiliary fuel line hooked up to it. And it did actually run properly a little bit. But, you know, I'd reached a point where it was like, after all this time, I just want a moped that works. <clears throat> and Ollie and I were over at John's place the other day and uh, he had this Yamaha Zuma, like a 04 Yamaha Zuma. And it's got these two headlights. You know, I'm a sucker for anything that's got like two headlights. I love the Gypsies with two headlights. I love the stack headlight, 60s Pontiacs. You know, I love the the, the, the pair of headlights. Um, Capris, Capri Mark Threes, love like Capri Mark 1s, the 3-litre Mark 1s with the quad headlights. Anyway, so I bought this, like, this. so John was like, do you want to ride it? I was like, yeah, and I was I was half, I was I was on the block, I was halfway round the block with my, with the throttle on the stop, not without a helmet on, <laughs> in this jacket, before I realised what I was doing. So I was like, you know, well, settle down, but, like, the moped's cool. Um, so I bought it, Um and and John rode it over later on and was like, you know, you just have to, when it gets warm, the, I think the pilot's jet blocked. What I should do is take the carb off and clean. And I was like, well, I, I mean, I just didn't want to like dismantle yet another vehicle that's having carb and fuel feed kind of problems. I was like, ah, so I was like, what, what, so I was like, would you reckon I can ride it? And he went, well, I can ride it. So I went, well, all right then. So the following day, so he rode it over. And the following day, it was a nice sunny day. So I went out and I thrashed it up and down the streets here. It's really good fun, right? Whale of a time. Must have ridden it for about 20 minutes. I'm feeling great about the fact that now it's got some of the new fuel and the fuel cleaner through it. It's running really well. And then I'm like, I'm going to run up to the Legion of Honor, which is this uh, art gallery um, that overlooks the Pacific Ocean, you know, views of the Golden Gate Bridge. So it's shit tons of tourists up there. So I'm like, up the golf course, right, over the handlebars. Well, as, as I approach the zebra crossing in front of the Legion, there's this, like, marine mum, blonde, right, attractive. So because she's attractive, I'm looking. She makes eye contact with me, and I now have to stop at the crosswalk, right? So I stop. And it won't fucking go again. But it's not going anywhere. So she's now crossing, is looking at me. She's rejoined her family. They're looking at me. I'm now. Oh, man. Machinery loves to fuck you when it's the worst moment, doesn't it? So I, so I'm like, so I was just like, so I took my helmet off and I sat down by the fountain and I, I, I like took a picture 
of it, posted it on Instagram and was like, oh, bollocks. I just told Dana that I just bought another motorcycle. And worse, told her that it broke down. <laughs> it's like, bro. So I called John and he was like, oh, I'm like, men would be like, I'm going out, which means like I'm going somewhere in the hopes of meeting some dog walking chick who he's working hard with at the moment. But I only realized that when he turned up and he looked really good and Remus had obviously been bathed and looked really good, right? So he, he's like, so he's like all business. He's like, I think I can ride it back to the house. And I went, well, it's all downhill. I think I can probably ride it back to the house. He went, no, you just need to like rev it more and you need to kick it. If you kick it, it like gets going more. So he kicks it and it is immediately revving up better. And then he's like, but here's the thing, right? It's not one wheel off the ground, right? It's got the wheel on the ground, even when it's on the kickstand, because it's got these like chunky tires. So if you rev the shit out of it too much when it's still, it tries to go off on its own up the street, right? Yeah. So you need to be holding the brake. So basically, it's like the technique for doing a burnout, right? You stand on the brake, then you come in the gas and rev it to keep the the the, the motor up. So you know, I'd I'd love to tell you that I thought it was well, not I'd love to tell you, but you know, by rights, I tell you it was an annoying waste of money and I'd been conned. I bought a moped that would work. And once again, I've got another machine that's kind of cool, but doesn't work properly. But you know, at the same time, right. John wrote it back to the house. It works. Okay. I now have seen that if you kick it, it runs better. Um, So I might go out and ride again and hope that I can blow the dirt out of the pilot jet rather than uh what what, you know here's the i mean i know what you mean but like you know it's a moped yeah it's a yamaha it'll be pretty easy to get the car off and clean it yeah just do that because like something is fucked to be broken down and just to like give you a pay your moped story back with a moped story (laughs) similar (laughs) embarrassment levels um i was on the forecourt once in that with that red honda cub 90 that i had and uh Went back to start it, like, you know, put the thing in, wearing like a, that first helmet, I think the black one I had with the, with the wax jacket and jeans, you know, I mean, I'm just like right moped. Um, and I put the key in, started, like pressed it, started it, gave it a little bit of revs because it liked a little bit of revs and it decided to go, no, I want to be in first. So it then just trundled forward on its own off the center stand, off the side stand, and then crashed into the bit where they keep the coal and the logs outside the garage. <laughs> I mean, like made it all the way across. Well, it's not quite. It's all like when it wobbled along whilst I stood there thinking, oh, fuck, you know, and then went boing onto its side and slid into them. I was like, oh, nice. And then you're looking around, everyone's like looking at you. And you're like, um. So that, that house we lived in, in, you reminded me of the rolling away. Uh, that house we lived in in um, in early in Reading. Um, you remember because of the Capri and the Alpha um, being one on the drive, the other on the lawn, because the landlord inconsiderately used the garage, didn't he? So we we so I, 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 I so we would park. Remember on the grass on the little grassy patch outside of the house. Well, remember I had my dad's like ninety Cavalier CD. There's the champagne coloured one that was like the old man special that had been owned from new by the old bloke across the road. Um, I uh, got back from somewhere, parked up, went in the house, like took a piss, like had a drink, and I stood in the living room looking out the window, and I was like, the car's gone. Where's the fucking car? 
where's the fucking car? So I like, woohoo, I run out and I look, look left and it's not there. And I look down and it had rolled, I'd forgotten to put the handbrake on and it had rolled down the hill, off the curb, across the mouth of a T-junction and then had run along the curb on across the T-junction, the road had curved and it had stopped before it got to the main road where there were cars parked and other houses. I remember you telling Bef- me about that that evening now. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was, I was like, you know, that was... One day, you know, <laughs> Providence is backing you. <laughs> well, it's, as, as David Hobbs said, you know, it's, it's, all, it's better to be lucky than good. Mm-hmm. Well, that happened to Dens, didn't it? And, like, the car was a write-off. Did it? Not that car, obviously, or that. But I'm sure. Yeah, he told me that his um in one of the cars he had in Plymouth, he didn't put the handbrake on like hard enough, and it rolled back down the hill and smashed into another car. Oh. Yeah, man, it happens, especially if the handbrake like is on, and not quite. I mean, in that BMW, like I had the handbrake on, but not quite on enough because when the the uh, I was on the channel, it slid backwards when there was a sort of jolt. And I thought, did that slide backwards? And you're never quite sure when you're sitting in the thing. Is it just that you're looking out the window at the yeah. time and that starts moving? So I was like, fine. And then I thought, as they started to go, the beep, beep. I thought, I was just on the case. I was like, hold on a second. I'm not, I feel wrong about this. I should maybe try and pull forward. And the guy, the ticket guy came by and went, move, move. They're going to hit your door. So I pulled it forward and was just in time. He went, buy a lottery ticket today, mate. So you've got to be careful with that sort of thing. I mean, what you can easily hit your door. Huh? What was going to hit well, you? No, the, the, it would hit the back of the car because when you're in the channel, they've got the barriers that come down in between. Oh, yeah. Oh, then, so when the barrier came down. Oh, you. Well, so I, was, I wasn't under it, 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 but they open up. They open up like that. And then they, so, cause the, so they don't go up into the ceiling. Oh, no. They open up to the side. And because it comes forward, if you're, if you've moved at all, it's going to hit the back of your car. Huh. Or the front, for that matter. But I think only the back because um, of the way they open up. But yeah, I don't know. It's um, lucky escapes. So yeah, it's easy done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the moped, um, and and the other's not really so much of a new car as a uh, part. That's how I've positioned it up to to Dana. <laughs> they simply a part because, as you know, Mark Mark Cormian was like, "Oh, I'm moving cars from my like all my spots in Southern California," and he's talking to me about all these cars, which I didn't even realize he got. I hadn't realized he got three or four different storage spots so anyway he's like oh i'm looking to like move stuff off so i don't know if he was hinting but i was like you know if you want to put that thunderbird up at my place up up north you you can so he was like yeah i'll call you which usually means you're never going to hear from me about this topic ever again for the rest of your days but in fact, he called me and then very helpfully said, I'm going to be there tomorrow. So I'm like, oh, fuck. Like now I have to like drop everything I'm doing. Because here's, here's the thing, right? So so what I should say is, is the car. So do you remember years ago, I told you that when he was doing his quote, gate building, close quotes, business up in Mendocino, where in return for some of the gates, one of the places that he was working at, there was stuff like that at the time when he was looking at it was not interesting, like square body Chevy pickup trucks, which has since have become super collectible. But when I remember when you told me about them, I was like, whatever, that was was not something it was. But there were two cars that were there that were of interest. One was uh, a 
Bandit era 78 Firebird Trans Am, but it was all blue. Blue exterior, metallic blue exterior, blue interior, silver fire chicken. Um, and that was the car that he was really most interested in, but that required some money and he wanted to take that. But in the end, he took what was the guy's granddad's car that was this navy blue. They obviously liked blue cars in that family, didn't they, looking back? Navy blue over navy blue Thunderbird, 66 Thunderbird. So um, Thelma and Louise kind of era, a cleaned up version of the Thelma and Louise car, but with a hard top. And most of those Thunderbirds had a 390, big block 390, which is what, like five, nine, something like that. But some of them, the option, the big block option was a, or the, you know, the hypo option was the police interceptor 428. Well, this is a 428 car, which is why Mark wanted it. Low mileage. I looked on eBay, you know, the engine, to, to, just the engine on its own. I mean, there's one on eBay at the moment for nine grand and there's one built for 12. That's all. There's nothing. There's no other police interceptor 428. So, so I don't know if you go on like that hokey ass message board, like HAMB, which seems to be the best outlet for hot rod stuff. You know, if you went to the right swap meets, I mean, I'm not a hot rod guy, so I'm not really, but it seemed to me that the, so the next thing I did was I went on Hemmings and I was like, um, because I was feeling like if, if there's no, if, if the 428s are super rare, it's a bit out of order to take the engine out of it, which is kind of what I wanted, which is what my plan is. But there's half a dozen of them for sale on Hemmings at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a good colour combo. The car's a car's a total basket case, right? So the so the plan is that the engine comes out of it, and that it go into the Mercury to be the gasser. So I have the back axle from this '70 Bronco. I have this '66 428 motor. Um, you can buy top loaders, the four speed transmission, two and a half grand, something like that. So then I've got the bits to build the gasser dragster. So, so, uh, so that was why. So when Mark was like, I want, I'm like, can you help me out? I was like, yeah, deliver the Thunderbird. So I was over there with him to, and he arrives in this like E350, silver E350 van, towing this Thunderbird on an open trail, right? And the Thunderbird's not quite straight on the trailer. And I realise it's because the trailer is like fundamentally bent, right, and twisted. And I should say, in the van with Mark, uh, I would say a dozen dogs. Okay. Because right? he has this like homeless, like this homeless dog rescue business that, that, that he does, right? So, so we, we and, and the long and short is coming over the grapevine <clears throat> out of L.A., the trailer decided to try and well, the Thunderbird decided first that it would want it wanted to be in the van, <laughs> and then that if it wasn't allowed to be in the van, it wanted to be off the trailer and at the side of the road. And then if it couldn't be off the trailer at the side of the road, it wanted to be in the central reservation ahead of the E three fifty. So that had been a fairly sphincter-clenching descent. <laughs> um, it, 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 the, it, 
bucked around on the trailer and then it had displaced the trailer. Mark being Mark had carried on and then it had blown a tire on the trailer because one of the one of the axles was was uh, was crabbing. I mean, he'd, he'd uh, yeah, so classic, classic Mark. So the van's silver, right? But one of the rear doors is a door from a rotor router van. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, when I was changing the tire, I tried to throw it up onto the roof. This is all taking place at four o'clock in the morning at the side of the road, right? When I was trying to change the tire after the tire burst, I tried to throw it up on the roof, but I missed and I broke the glass. Well, it was raining and cold and the dogs couldn't take it. So yesterday morning, I stopped at a wrecking yard like in Merced or Modesto or one of those towns up 99. But I guess they bond the glass in. They glued the glass into the door. So Mark being Mark was like, well, I just buy the whole door off you to the to the scrap man and just took the door off, took the door off the van. And so that's why it's got the roto-router door. So whilst I was there, like at my place, he's like taking the door card off and the trim piece with the number plate of the van on and building it onto the door as we're, uh, as we're, uh, yeah. So music, like uh, and I'm doing musical cars because, the race cars with, so I've got the Thunderbird in, the race cars at Jason's, but I'd already used the race car spot to allow John to store four Honda CB motorcycles. So yesterday we went over there to get the Mercedes out of the public storage where it had gone. So I didn't have to pay another month on the public storage. So as when, when we were driving over there, I said to John, I'm surprised you didn't bring the van. Because we've got to move four bikes. And he went, I thought we were only moving two. That's why I bought the truck. And I'm like, well, I think we might need to move four. Um, and he's like, oh, I'm sure we'll. I'm sure we'll make them fit. <laughs> <laughs> and we get over there, right? And, and, it's, and, and it's clear, right, that the first thing we're going to have to do is take the bikes out so that we can, you know, like, you know, begin to do anything, right? But it's piassing with rain now. There's like standing water. It's the same weather as when they delivered my Kawasaki ZX-10. They unloaded it from the truck and I not got on well with the truck driver. And he was basically like, fuck you and drove off and uh, left the bike. Right. It was on a kickstand. But by the time I came to move it, it had sunk into the mud so much that it was standing up on its own. Like I'm kicked the kickstand up. And it was still like in in the so it was like that. So I was like, so how are we gonna like the the I said to John when we were driving back and everything had gone smoothly. I was like, I was worried it was like the beginning of like a, a sort of you know horror movie when you were like, now it's slippery, so you push from the shock, and I'm gonna because you know we had to like the ramp down, so we had to like push it up into the back of the truck. Right, the ground's all soft, so we've got it like backed into the so we're on the concrete floor of the. But anyway, anyway, so uh, so what we ended up doing was getting the 77 Lincoln town car, like the one that we traveled in, in, in the States, the 77 Lincoln town car into neutral. And then we just drove his Toyota truck in, pushed the, the, the Lincoln back. So it's right touching the Camaro and then got, um, 
and then the, the then John was able to get the CB750 and CB900 crushed right up against the front of the Lincoln. And then I was able to get the Mercedes in. And there was a whole inch to spare. There was a whole inch to spare. Easy. And, and now, and now there's the only way to get from one end of the storage space to the other is by walking on cars. There's no walkways in between. You are walking on cars. So... Go me with <laughs> uh, with with uh, with filling up the space with the non-functional stuff that that's not really what I should have uh, what I should be doing. I'm also on the subject of of, of my collecting. I'm also um, very much feeling um, that I sh- that I got I started doing the sports bikes because I was interested in this idea of of you remember the sports bikes. I was inspired. It was like it was. I was in Miami and I was in that Windward art district there. And there was, I was in this Chufty art gallery and the artist who, who had like this terracotta kind of colors and things going on, he painted a Kawasaki ZZR 600 and all these art types were going, hmm, hmm, very interesting. Looking at this two grand, not that interesting sports bike, sports tour up on a plinth. And I was thinking, that was the first time I'd seen motorcycles truly as art and realized that other people could see motorcycles as art as well. So I then began to think, well, if I'm, a, you know, if I'm really, I'm really into these things, I feel really passionately about them. If anybody can do what you've heard of avant-garde fashion, right? Where it's like thought leadership, it's ideas that kind of seem like bullshit, but, and they seem crazy and they're out there a little bit, but sometimes years go by and they're seen to be quite prescient. And these things come from the gut. When John Garcia started buying um, Suzuki GSX-Rs, it wasn't because he was like, oh, these oil-cooled ones are going to escalate in value because these it wasn't anything like that at all. He just liked them and he had the money and he didn't want to save in the bank or do the stock market. And he enjoyed surfing Suzuki GSX-Rs and, you know, days where he bought lots of Suzuki GSX-Rs and rode them and became a connoisseur of them. And, you know, and then, oh, what? I was ahead of the market and now they're worth much more than, than I paid for them. You know, it, it, so seeing that, right, and failing to buy a Suzuki Hayabusa, for three thousand dollars a 99 one owner twenty thousand mile you know the bike having let that go i have i decided so so that was what led me to do the bike collecting i'm now feeling another stage of this avant-garde collecting and we, we, we've touched on this somewhat before i want an 18 wheeler i want a big truck i want a big diesel truck with you know, I want a proper highway hauler, not a Peterbilt or gussied up, not one of these ones that does that tows stuff to Walgreens or Safeway locally. I want one of the ones that are out on the highway that are going to be autonomous and electrified first. I want one of the ones that tows between the distribution centers, and I, I, uh, I'd like a Freightliner, and and I want it at it and. If it's truly to be my avant-garde collecting, even if I had the funds to get a decent one, I should get a clapped out one right at the end of its life because that is my oeuvre. I mean, 
Where are you going to keep it is the obvious question. Okay, well, that I gave considerable thought to as as well, because this is the reality, right? That storage, to, to enjoy the car hobby is to have storage problems, right? And we were just talking about the storage problems uh, earlier. We even, the whole reason why that Cavalier rolled down the hill was because the Capri and the Alpha uh, were, were sat there on, on, on the drive there, weren't they? Um, so I think it's a scale thing. Right. I, th- I think that, that you begin with finding somewhere where you can rent land cheaply and put a shipping crate on there. And I think you do a series of 40 foot shipping crates because each 40 foot shipping crate is two cars. Right. Or, you know, however many bikes you can shake a stick. at, Right. So so you, you and, and I think the step from there is buying land. And I think the step from there is putting out like a building on that land that becomes the, the, the space. The challenge for me is that I, I don't like leaving, you know, I don't like leaving my toy box away. I like to be close to the toy box. And the only way you can afford land and the toy box is outside of the city, which is exactly where my wife doesn't want to live. So that's, this is why I did the bikes really, because I can get, lots of them in my garage here in, in in the city without needing to to you know to, so, to uh, okay where's the truck going then? Ooh, oh later on so 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 it's it's going um uh wherever the shipping crates are it's oh, part right. of the whole shipping crate it's part no no it won't it'll oh. sit alongside the shipping crate it will okay. also of course facilitate the movement of the shipping crates it being really? an 18 wheeler and all are you going to have the shipping crates on trailers i could do couldn't i was that or you have a crane you know i was looking at a moment ago before you called i was on I, before we did this call i was on commercial vehicle trailer and i was looking at a new car like a, a, a trailer that can haul eight cars and i was thinking oh you don't even need storage you just put the cars on there the only issue with that, though, is that you are essentially saying, here are all my toys ready to be robbed. Because they're yeah, already yeah. on you the need to park inside. It would need to, you need to put the yeah, whole thing inside. inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look. Yeah. It would also, also be a total asshole because if you needed to get off one of the cars at the front and, you know, one of the ones in between didn't start or couldn't be moved for some reason which never happened with any of the cars that i was likely to interact with yes but but the 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 other the other wrinkle with it is that california has this rule that you can't operate any commercial vehicles with diesel engines that are older than 2010 hard and fast rule none at all but i was beagling and schneegling around and I realized that there is an exemption for vehicles that are driven less than a thousand miles a year. So I can drive any polluting old piece of shit, even in California, as long right. as I, I think you mean you can drive any old classic. That's what that, that's got to be a classic policy, isn't it? Less than a thousand miles a year. Well, except it doesn't specify age. That's what I was looking at this morning. Was I remember the exemption was there, but I was reading this morning, it doesn't specify age. See, there's a there's another angle here that John's trying to work, which is the Irish moving guys have a truck, and he's wondering if he can use that truck for storage. But the the uh, you know the the uh, 
well, candidly, the legality of the truck is considerably in, in question. There was some tomfoolery where the finance company that owned it went bust. So they still own it, but they don't have they never took possession of it. And until they take possession of it, you you can't there's like it's it's like in title limbo. It doesn't have a legal status. How how we talked for half an hour and I'm only on the second how have I? Talk for half an hour. I'm only on the second uh, item on my uh, on my agenda. Um, so I, I I've you know so it, my so my vision is is working towards this truck at the moment, and I will do a CDL like a commercial driver's license. So I have the skills to 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 operate it properly, yeah, and I am conscious of the fact that if you're driving some old piece of shit that's you know weighing forty four tons, that's you know a serious safety thing. So it's a bit like you know flying cool old planes they're like cool but they're dangerous um i'm not sure you know so i might you know but i i want to as i say it's this it's this concept and this is what i want kind of wanted to to touch on with you is this concept of avant-garde collecting the concept of getting something just because you think it's cool for no reason other than you think it's cool and you're feeling it and even if other people aren't feeling it it's your poem and it's your thing and in time the general perception will will catch up because they will right diesel trucks in the year 2040 diesel trucks are going to have completely disappeared like a diesel truck that you can drive and has like 18 wheels and a detroit two-stroke diesel those things are going to have disappeared completely they're all going to be these electric things that are controlled remotely aren't they so they're going to be like steam engines at that point well then they're going to be interesting I'm not saying they're going to be worth anything, but I'm also saying nobody preserves. People are going to preserve the Peterbilts. Nobody's going to preserve the Freightliner in white that was owned by Ryder. It's now done 3 million miles and he's over. It's ready to be broken up. No, Summers is going to step in and save it. A sleeper. It's got to be a sleeper. Yeah, mostly, yeah. mostly for the aesthetics but also for the practicality of it. You too can wank where some trucker has wanked before. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 <laughs> so remember when we were living together, um, maybe 20 years ago, <clears throat> we were watching, we watched Miami Vice again. And we were disappointed in it because we remembered it as teenagers and it seemed so ineffably cool when we were teenagers. And then when we watched it again, um, like in the early 2000s, it just seemed naff, basically. And and then it's sort of now it's made its way into the realms of coolness again, right? Uh I, and and I'm I'm struck by you might remember a couple of years ago I'd um, obviously through cars I'd rubbed up against in YouTube um, new retro wave music because so much new retro wave music has Lamborghini Countach and Ferrari Testarossas um, you, you know pictured in it so so I'd encountered new retro wave music and and through new retro wave music I realised that there was this whole sort of 80s like retro kind of, of of thing going on that had taken you know Miami Vice to be you know the center of this like arc 
you know, archetypal coolness, right? And, you know, my wife has relatives that live in, in Florida. So, you know, the first time I went to Miami, you know, I went to the police station, the Miami Vice police station. I went to the harbour where Crockett's boat was. And that was disappointing, right? Because there's a fucking great bridge with cars all driving over it right by the harbour. But the camera angle was always shot away from the bridge, right? It was like it was like the camera angle and the, every angle at Crockett's Harbour was shot like in a baseball diamond that cut out the industrial bit of the harbour and the big ships and cut out the fact that you were overlooked by the Kai. It was just, it made you realise just how a completely bogus environment <laughs> the world of, of, of Miami Vice was, right? It was a completely, it was as fake as that Ferrari Daytona was the old man Ferrari. Apparently the whole deal with the white car, there was the black one and then the white one. The whole deal with the black one was Ferrari loved the show, but hated the replica car. So the understanding was that the white car would be given to them, given to them on the understanding the black one was trashed on the screen, blew up on the screen was over on the screen. And there is an episode where the black car disappears and the white one is, is introduced. And all that was apparently scripted by old man Ferrari. Believe that if, uh, if, if you want. Um, so the, the reason that I had this as, as a theme was that, that this is a, a piece of motoring history that I'm really interested in because there is a point where motorsport and Miami Vice completely intersects. Now there were Miami Vice Grand Prix and these uh, Miami Grand Prix and these weren't Formula One Grand Prix. These were for what you would understand to be Group C cars like 80s Le Mans cars. So these big aero wings ground effects wings with like v6 and four cylinder motors with great big turbos on them and tons of of turbo lag and you know probably do can you know plenty 200 miles an hour all day long but yeah porsche porsche 956s right mm -hmm. well i maybe well i tell you how long ago it was it was 2018 because i looked up the auction description in 2018, Gooding asked me to write about a March 83G. And the car was in this blue thunder racing livery. And I thought, blue thunder? Like, what association do you have with blue thunder? Me? Yeah. When you say blue... A helicopter gunship. Yeah, a helicopter gunship, a TV show yeah. that was a helicopter gunship, right? Yeah. Well, in the 80s, right, IMSA, which was a Le Mans racing, it, there was a joke that it stood for the International Marijuana Smuggling Association, right? <laughs> and and the, the reality is that there were a number of teams that basically smuggled drugs and spent the money racing. 
and yeah, yeah, I watched some Vin Wiki thing about some of it, or was it one that you sent me? I can't remember. Oh well, I've been digging around. Like there's there's a couple of areas of history that I've been digging around. I bought the books. I've I've not really got into it and 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 read it properly. But it started for me with this March eighty three Jeep. And the car's an awesome car, right? There are only three ever made. One's in this blue thunder livery. Another's in this red lobster livery. You know that restaurant, Red Lobster. Mm-hmm. But if you imagine a Porsche nine five six that doesn't have lights, it's all white. It doesn't have lights. And where the lights are, it's as if you've laid a lobster over the top of it. So it has these claws coming down like the side of the cabin. One of the coolest liveries, this side of like the hippie 917. If you don't know what I mean by the hippie 917, have a a look at that card. Um, um, But yeah, so, so I was, so, so the 83G, right, is the, designed by Adrian Newey, the March 83G, designed by Adrian Newey before he's in Formula One. The car evolves into the Porsche 956. It's a winner with a bunch, with two or three different engines in it. Which if you just stop and think about that, think about how hard it is to design a racing car around one engine, let alone a car that was good with one engine and then could could win with, 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 with others. Um, well, Blue Thunder Racing was one of these pot-sponsored teams. I think, from my research, there's a good chance that the chassis that I wrote about itself was actually used to smuggle pot. I think it's to stick it in the chassis, yeah? Yeah. 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 But but it, it, it would, you know, the... the um, so the, the Blue Thunder guy was this guy, Randy Lanier. Really nice guy. Um, served a lot of time and he's out of jail now. Um, but the the Miami Vice tie is that la- is that the it, it was all mixed up with flying as well, right? That the cars and the flying was all sort of tied tied together. Um, and the, the you know, and it's it's I tell you what it is, right? We've all seen Top Gun Maverick, right? And there's Maverick living in the warehouse with the hot rod plane and the bikes and the and it's the epitome of cool. The coolest people in the Miami Vice world were the people that flew the planes. That that and and the fact that you could you know you you could you you could have uh, you you could be you you could be Top Gun Maverick right and and not have to take the army shill. You could uh, you could have done it flying. Um, drugs easily if you were ethically um if you were ethically uh negotiable compromised in in, in that kind of way yeah yeah um so old uh so so lania and the blue so blue thunder right i reckon they were sitting around smoking a joint one day the show comes on and they're like that's fucking cool what are we going to call the team i mean one of them um the, the other guys the whittington brothers they did a sponsorship deal where uh it was like for for a perfume and they bought somebody else's perfume, relabeled it, hired all these models to walk around the pits, spraying people with the perfume. And it was like whoever's perfume on the side of the car, all funded by drug smuggling. I'd get rid of the smell of the puff, wouldn't it? So the car, there was a car on the lawn at Pebble Beach last year. And it was one of my favorite stories about this, that the, 
posted the 935, right? And it was the rules at the mall where it had to be like a silhouette shape, but they could do the flat nose and the wide wing on it and the big tail on it and, and there's socking great turbo on it. So it's like a normal Porsche, normal Porsche flat six, but with a giant moat, obviously strengthened, right? But with a giant turbo on it. Well, apparently, well, I mean, I'm no expert, but according to the Porsche people that I you know, did my pebble docent stuff with. Um, Kramer, the privateer, developed a version of the turbo in a different aero package. That So their car was better than anybody else's. It, was, it became known as the K3, the 935 K3. But it's fundamentally different car from the 935. Well, Kramer, um, so knowing this, right, the Whittington brothers agree with the with Kramer that they're going to be able to drive at Le Mans. So they turn up at Le Mans and before the race, Kramer's there with like Klaus Ludwig and the other German drivers. And he's like, you know, right, you know, Ludwig will start. Bill Whittington will be next. You know, other Whittington will be. And the, and the Whittingtons are like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, we want to start the race. If the car breaks... We're not going to race. We're not coming all the way from America to not get a race. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. I am the team manager. I say what happened. Well, what would it take for us to run the team? Well, you'd need to own the car. Joe, well, how much would that be? Throw the number were, uh, throws out a random number. The car at most was worth 100 grand. He says 250 grand, Kramer says. So Dick and Bill look at each other. And one says to the other, go back to the trailer and get the duffel bag. And they buy the car on the spot. And win the race. And win the race. In the rain, in the... Must have been some good puff. Must have been some good puff, right? <laughs> um, they own Road Atlanta. And the thought was that what they used to do was they would fly two identical planes. Two planes would take off from like one from a race location, say, and another one from some spot in South America, say. And then as they approached US radar, one would go under the other and they would fly like this, the road Atlanta. And road Atlanta has a long straight on it. So Road Atlanta, super long backstretch. The two planes would would come along and one plane still underneath the other one. And, you know, the one with all the jugs in would land on the runway and the other one would carry on to its like legitimate uh, uh, location. Now, the way that story cropped up was that people driving on the track would notice these weird skid marks. <laughs> Because it'd be like, you think think about what a runway looks like versus what, you know, there's, you know, halfway down, you know, like the part of the track where it's like wide open throttle and there's like skid marks there. Like that, you, you know what I mean? That's not, uh... so yeah. So, um, uh, the other thing, and we maybe even talked about this, but before I've talked about it a lot because it really um, got my attention was, um, that podcast I listened to the sneak that was about that NASCAR mechanic, Mario Rossi, who disappeared. He was an engine builder and he disappeared. And without wanting to give away 
what happens in the sneak podcast because it's an amazing story brilliantly told without wanting to, to to give away you know without wanting to do a plot spoiler um it's exactly it, it's where nascar meets miami vice and the intersection point was mark the last time i saw him is like you know there's a boat near my storage unit he's looking at the boat i'm like what are you doing He's like best source of date correct big block motors is boats. In the seventies, people were going to junkyards, taking motors out of Cadillacs and so on, taking big block motors out of cars and pushing them in boats. And now it's a great way to 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 to, to find them again, right? So that intersection between cars and boats. Think about Miami Vice. Think about Crockett. Yeah, he has the Ferrari. He also has a cigarette boat. Why do you have the cigarette boat? Because you might just land the float plane out to sea and you go out in the boat and you pick it up and you come back. And you need the boat to be as fast as fuck because the customs guys are going to try and intercept you. You need to be out there, grab the stash and back again as fast as possible. You would clearly need to be some mean pilot to land in the open ocean. Maybe you don't land in the open ocean. Maybe they just circle and chuck the stuff out. But the point is that that was the point of those cigarette boats. I think that was how Mario Rossi got wrapped up in in that whole scene. I think he didn't just build engines for race cars. I think the race car engines went in some hot rod boats as well. And I think that meant that he got mixed up with some uh, some people who it might have been better that he didn't get mixed up with. I think they had that 935 at Goodwood first of a speed last year. Yeah, it's it's white. Well, I mean, I, I, well, sorry. Um, whether or not it was that one, they had a, a 935. I think it was this orange one, to be honest. They're, they're awesome, awesome cars. Oh, fucking yeah. They were originally designed with the wide body all the way up the door, but regulators were like upset about it, and that's why they had to take the doors off. So, if you because if you look at a 935 at the side, it looks like a 911 <coughs> glass house, and everything is completely 911. One of the mm. things very noticeable is that it almost seems it's almost like one of those hot rod Volkswagen Beetles when you see it, when I was looking at it on the lawn at Pebble because the windshield's so uh, so upright. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, here's a topic. Haggerty, the classic car insurance company, mm-hmm. are buying all the car shows. So, for example, they bought the Amelia Island Concorde. Partly, I think, because Bill Warner wanted to retire and it was like his thing. And you might think to yourself, well, can you buy a Concorde? Well, I guess you can, because Haggerty have been, because it's been an ongoing concern. So if you, in the UK, um, Hubnut does that event, the Festival of the Unexceptional, where, you know, if you've an Austin Maestro, you can take it along kind of thing. Um, Well, I know, right? It's not your bag, but it's... The, these these things are hugely uh, these things are hugely popular. You know, each each their own, right? It's oh, dude, yeah, absolutely. Thing, yeah, yeah. And, There's a place for everyone, yeah, definitely. 
So now Haggerty are buying all these classic car shows. What is that? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I guess I had considered it was a safe pair of hands, you know, and it's nice that they're investing in the future of, of the hobby. You know, if I want cars to carry on being driven and used and Haggerty's business is driving and using cars. I've met Mikhail Haggerty on a number of occasions. I've seen him speak in person on a number of, I've sat around boardroom tables with him and heard him contribute. The bloke gets cars. The bloke loves cars. Um, Of all the people to be buying up everything, you know, more power to him. I'm just a bit worried that he's going to be by 2040, he's going to be the emperor of classic cars. Or from the capitalism. It happens in every industry. I'm not talking about the business side of it. I'm talking about what does that do to the classic car movement? What was once something that was independent has now become not just a corporate entity, but one particular corporate entity and a particular corporate entity that has a particular agenda. And I, I want to know whether or not I'm paranoid. You know, I, I spoke to uh, an old friend, um, uh, you know, somebody who's been really influential to me, um, over, uh, you know, at Pebble Beach last year. And his, he was the person who, when I was like, you know, Haggerty are buying everything, he went, yeah, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, I never really thought about it before. And he went, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about it either. And that was what set me thinking, what implications does this have for, you know, is it a good thing for English heritage to own all the, uh, you know, castles and earthworks of a certain kind in in Britain? Yes, I I, I believe that that it is. But they don't make enough money. Like, so they need protecting car shows i mean you know it's they're owning sh- they're owning shows and and so so instead of just saying you know there's the old car space and i'm going to insure it they're saying there's the old car space i'm going to insure it but i'm going to protect my own business by making sure people are still driving on the road and the way that i'm going to ensure that they do that is by making sure there's a really vibrant community of shows and and events. Because if there's no shows to go to, you know, nobody's going to... If there's, if there's no event to go to... It's nice to show off, yeah, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. It's, it's nice to go and play with your toys. Um, people don't do it enough. So, you know, I think that should be encouraged. Um, yeah. But is it all of it being? But these shows that used to be independently owned are now all, you know, the whole. There's there's a sense of, you know, the, when the music label owns the band's music, you know, there's something yeah. weird about that to me. I, I I'm just, as I say, until I had the conversation with Mark Gessler, I hadn't had any thought about it at all. And then after that conversation, I was like, oh, you know, I, I like Mikhail Haggerty. I just don't like power concentrated in one 
in one yeah, entity. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, and there are plenty of parallels as to how, as to how it can go both ways, can't it? Isn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, and often, you know, it doesn't. You know, the uh, the regency doesn't survive down the generations, if you like, in terms of uh, if you've got a really talented general, doesn't mean the son of the general, the son of the king, is going to be any good. Um, so yeah, you know, and Haggard, you're a publicly traded company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, they're going to be driven by yeah. Yeah, and and you know, there's a sound business case, right? That that you know, if you're insuring cars, you you need to, you know, if you can create a theatre for people to use the cars and then protect that, you know, it's a bit you can like drive the values. Uh, That's what you can do. You can drive enthusiasm and drive the values. So the more they do from that point of view, it's going to be a good thing, I guess. Um, it does. It's difficult for it not to do, you know drive some level of homogeneity. Because it's the same mm. company with the same people with the same heads, so mm. therefore they can only have so many ideas. Um, but you know, I actually um, had lunch with with the guy that's that's uh, lunch dinner, I should say, with because uh, Wayne. It's it's I, I say this is it's not really me. It was Wayne um, knew the guy, so I tagged along and we we had uh, we had dinner in a um, in a restaurant at, at Pebble um, a couple of years ago. Um, he is, um, you know, well, I, I like the people that I meet at Haggerty, you know, of all the companies to be doing it, you know, I feel, I, I feel, you know, I almost feel, I feel better about that than I felt about Mercedes buying everything at Brooklands, you know, even though that was that, you know, that if it hadn't been Mercedes, if it hadn't been a German company, it maybe wouldn't have stuck in my craw in quite the same way. But at the same time, I recognize that Mercedes are an excellent caretaker. Um, Haggerty are that caretaker. Um, there is, and maybe you know, maybe a small concours. In, you know, maybe the festival of the unexceptional and other British concours and concours in Germany and France and so on. Maybe they can benefit from you know techniques that are used in in other you know concours around the world. You know, I don't. I there is. I, it's a. Uh, yeah, it's just weird that that an amateur thing is becoming corporatized. I think that's my basic contention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, we talked for ages. Let's do the quick fire. We'll probably talk for another half an hour in the quick fire. Um, what is your favorite car movie, or what's what do you think the best car movie is, or or both? Well, I can't profess to have watched all the car movies. So you know, any taking everything caveated, but uh, I saw this on the list um, about ten minutes, about an hour ago. So um, I reckon I, I difficult to I haven't decided yet to narrow it down to a, an actual winner, but for different things, and we can include the next item on the list, which is best car chase in the same conversation. I think because they are inextricably linked. Um, I like taxi. The original one in French, where he's driving—is it that Citroen, or is it a, is it a, or is it a Peugeot? But the one that comes up on like jacks and lowers itself down and stuff, and it's basically a it's Roman white. whole thing. Yeah, is it white? white. Yeah, it's a Peugeot four hundred five, four hundred six, isn't it? Yeah, but like it's like you know, it's essentially a soppy romance movie, <laughs> broadly as I recollect it, through the fog of a, a Wilds Lane <laughs> living room, um, but. Yeah, that was pretty special. Because uh, the, 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 the opening scene, the guy gets in and goes, get me to the airport. Like, you've got to get me to the airport. 
And he's like, well, how long have you got? And he sets the time on his watch and gets there like quicker. But the guy throws up when he gets out of the back of the thing because it's been so violently driven, like a touring car through the, through the, through the streets. So that's pretty good. I enjoyed that. I've only seen that once. It was a long time ago, but I remember thinking it was pretty cool. I like the one in France, obviously, with um, uh, the assassin bit going on. I can't remember. Um, Ronin. Ronin, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I like that SA quite a lot. Um, the um, not, not just the SA. There is the scene with um, there's three of those. There's the scene everyone remembers at the end with the M5 and the Peugeot 406, where. Yeah. Robert De Niro sitting alongside, they got a left-hand drive car. And so, and then rigged it up and, but his reactions are real, right? So the car's being driven and he sat on the other side. You see what I mean? They used a British registered right-hand drive car. Yeah. So the stunt driver. He does it like he's bricking it at points. Well, he is because yeah. the bloke, because he's next to a stunt driver who's doing his, his Who's dance. giving it a 10 out of 10. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, there's a scene, I remember a scene with a brown Mercedes, like first generation Mercedes S-Class. And I remember enjoying that scene very much. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's that is good. a good movie for... for, it, for yeah, Cardi. it's got some quality bits. So when he like, does that lovely four-wheel drift in the S8 round the corner on cobbles at the top of the hill to go back down the next street, that's just, just chef's kiss. Really nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I like that. And then I know it's cake, yeah, I know it's cake, but like I, I, the Bad Boys 2 550 scene where he's sliding it around and then firing an Uzi out of the window. I mean, like, come on. It's <laughs> it's just lovely. That whole scene where they're like dropping shit off the back of, or is that in Bad Boys 1 where they're dropping stuff off the back of uh, car trailers and bouncing them on the road? They're, no, that is Bad Boys 2, and he's driving the 550 in between it. And look, you know, it's early CGI. So some of the bits you're like, all right, it's a, like, it's a little bit like that's computer enhanced. <laughs> I mean, it's still pretty cool. People are getting hit in the face with like flying cars um, and massive 550 V12 wailing through the whole thing. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. I quite enjoyed that. I think uh, for me, um, I always would say that I thought Le Mans was uh was my favorite car movie i'm not sure if it is now i've i've watched it so many times with ollie i'm not sure if i'm a bit over it um i do think le mans probably the best movie that i've watched about motor racing the senna movies the senna documentary is really really good um as as well but um i don't know and i don't know what i'd say my my favorite car movie is i mean two lane blacktop deserves a, a, a mention but what i would say for car chases I encountered this on YouTube. Um, in the wake of Dirty Harry, there were like a bunch of Italian movies made that were like Italian versions of Dirty Harry. And there's one movie called Roma Violenta, <laughs> which you don't need to speak much Italian to, to understand it. Yeah, okay. And, and, and the, the clip that, that I remember is, is uh, there's an armed robbery and the bad guys make off in one of those BMW sedans, early 70s sedans that are like the 1600 or 2002s, but were a bit bigger and they had the, the square lights. So they were, it, was it Neue Klasse? Is that what they called it? It was like the Neue Klasse design, but the bigger. Anyway, one of those. So the bad guys are, are making off in, in there and the good guy, he's following in a burgundy alpha sedan. And, uh, um, 
it's through Rome. It's it's really pacey. It's really gritty. Uh, there's one scene where um, the bad guys like cut across a park, and uh, uh, there's another and and there's some people waiting at a bus stop, and they machine gun the people at the bus stop in the hope of holding up the the bad. In a lot of the clips on YouTube, that bit's edited out because it's so fucking. <laughs> so absolutely gratuitous but but they uh and then like they they hold some people up and they machine gun him again and there's there's another scene that i remember i used it in one of my classes one time where one of my students um said about that his favorite scene was that the hero's like this blonde guy with with like a big mustache which the the italians call i, I baffi conquistadori which is brilliant this is clay uh Clay Regazzoni, one of Ferrari's engineers, one of Ferrari's like employees, described Regazzoni as having Ibaffi conquistadori, and I always re- remember, remember that because that's the that's the kind of moustache the hero has, right? And and so you know the windshield has been riddled, this Alpha has been riddled with bullets. So you see him like lean back, and he puts his feet up and he kicks the windshield out, and you can see like the wooden dash and one of those shifters that comes out of the kind of out of the floor but more out of the dashboard so the knobs really close to to, to the uh, to, to the steering wheel um what my student pointed out was it's, it's that moment where the chase where there's been the chase then there's been the out of order incident at the bus stop now with the kicking out of the windshield that there, there comes some like 70s widdly woo music and the chase speeds up. They're like outside of town. Like the chase has a has a rhythm to it. I can't believe I've waxed so lyrical about <laughs> Roma Violenta. It's like an eight minute car chase, and there is a bit of under cranking. You know, it is sped up in places, but really, uh, really enjoyable. Okay, you have a two car garage in Monaco. What's in it? Money, no object. <laughs> No. Money, no object, but you and your wife. This is these are the two cars for you and your family. Yeah, so I won't be anything stupid. Um, I don't know. Let me have a think about that one. I, I mean, my instant thought is to have something like city useful. Well, I'll go first whilst you're thinking. Go on, then. Um, my first one was exactly what you thought after I have something practical, right? My wife needs to drive something. Um, a Turbo S Cabrio. A late model Turbo S Cabrio in whatever. I was thinking actually more city practical than that. I was thinking like a Yaris GR. No, well you can have your Yaris GR on the other side of my garage, and I'll say it now before I think more and change my mind. A Bentley, a period proper Bentley. Mm. I was thinking about those five nine nines you could get with a manual. Oh, six hundred and forty horsepower V twelve front engine rear wheel drive with a stick i mean it cost me a lot of money because i think they made four of them or something like that. They, or it doesn't cost you any money it's this magic garage oh well i mean in which case i definitely have one of those um, what color black with the pentagram alloys like if i'm gonna cheese dick it then fucking suck on it i'm going well, full, with, full with, with red interior or or, or cream uh, interior. i don't know i might go for a son and ice i don't know no, nah, probably like a, a yeah, sort of a charcoal um, leather interior or something like that. Or maybe no, no, sort of like gun graphite sort of leather interior, I think. That'd be the quite black cool. exterior, greyish interior. Yeah, yeah. Good, I think maybe that sort of grey Alcantara suede. I quite like that. 
Um, most impressive rental car? Um, well, as you know, I've done about 25,000 miles around America's West Coast natural, national parks over multiple years, costing me far too much money on holidays um, in a selection of Mustangs. Uh, starting with the the V the the, uh, the small one, um, and then working up to a series of V8s over multiple years, I have had amazing times in those cars. Given where we were, and you know, runs up vol you know extinct volcanoes and back down and stuff to get back down before they stop serving gluten free pasta because my wife's having a sugar moment and stuff in this beautiful sunset thrashing a V8 along like empty roads because everyone left the national park ages ago we passed them leaving when we were on our way up but it's a lovely time to visit national parks because you're driving up empty beautiful roads in the sunset and then you have your moment up there when there's hardly anyone there and then you drive back down and race to get back to the restaurant in time but you arrive at like 10 to 9 and then have a three course meal and they're really nice about it just tip generously you know <laughs> but uh, um yeah so those things have got to get mentioned I mean, at the other end of the scale, we had that. Um... No, actually, no. Okay, yeah, I was going to say that four hundred six we took down from Paris when just after they came out down to the Côte d'Azur and back, and then we got moved on by the police at five in the morning from the services we were sleeping at, and they banged on the window and went ha -da -da -da, ha -da -da, and barked at me, and you and I looked sleepy, and I went d'accord, and they they just cursed us out and drove away. Um, we got off. We got off the Eurostar. <laughs> went to the rental car place. They gave us the rental car, and it was brand new. Mm. It had like three kilometers yeah. on it. And and then I had to get it out of the parking station, which was tighter than an ant's nether regions. Yeah. And then I had to get it out of Paris. Brand and, and I, I remember being so. I remember getting it out of Gardu Nor and thinking what an asshole that station was and yep. being nervous about the streets. The next thing I remember was the Jura and um, the, it, the, it had some rain on the screen and the wipers working. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced wipers. You know what it was? It was a, it was an early pre, it was an early second generation one that had like the clear lens headlights and the grill was like more of a mouth than than a grill. It was a really good looking car. Not for nothing. Peugeot's now, I think, are really good looking cars. I think Peugeot are really nailed styling. Um, they often do better in the face than they do in the sort of nether regions. It's a bit like a dog that's got a giant head and a really small ass. I think sometimes with with Peugeot's uh, styling. But I love that that four hundred seven. I do remember being woken up. We also they woke us up. We also, we, they woke us up and we went into the services and had steak free for breakfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was nice. Yeah. I don't wonder why I've got high cholesterol. And it bears saying that those service, the services food on Europe is better. It's not great, but it's better than UK. It just is. Except for those independent ones that are run by farms and they usually got some cool stuff there. But anyway, we very much digress. Um, but yeah. Um, the reality is I wouldn't get away with a, a Yaris GR on the other side when the missus could have like a, a dream Ferrari. So that would be in the other side of the garage. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my most impressive rental car was, uh, 
when Mark Newton and I went to the 2006 NASCAR race at Fontana in LA and he rented an Infiniti G35 sedan. So your Nissan, um, but with like a four-door sedan body. And it had this, at the time, Infiniti had this really exciting like catamaran styling going on. It had these oblong headlights. They're a bit like, you know, early 70s Mercedes with those oblong headlights, but they were leaned back. It was a bit visually challenging at the time. I remember pointing them out to you and, and Dens. Um, and both of you being a bit like, this was when I was getting married, like 2006, something like right. something like that. But um, at, at the time we, we had one. Um, uh, so after Fontana, when we were driving home, we came off one freeway and north of LA somewhere. And it was a sweeping right hander. And I don't know why Mark was going as fast as he was, but we were in this like right hander about like 120 miles an hour or something like that. And, and there was a Suburban on the hard shoulder and it pulled off the hard shoulder. So in the turn, at well north of 100 miles an hour, Mark had to use some brake and the thing was fine. The thing was just composed. Yeah. They, know, they're Mark, great didn't, Mark didn't panic and didn't hit the brakes too hard. And, you know, the... the, the you know, we shenigled on. There was plenty of room, and there was no reason to panic. I was at that moment that car impressed the 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 bejesus out of me. I I'd never encountered like a middleweight sedan that could do 140 miles an hour like that easily before. I mean, my Laguna could do 140 miles an hour, but it it was like you know that was like you know that was the big motor in the plain wrapper, and it was as <laughs> rare as Ben's teeth, right? Mm-hmm. That. That in and the, because that Infinity was rear wheel drive as well, I just thought those were were epic, epic cars. Um, the other one that ought to get an honorable mention very briefly is the white Nissan Micra that I rented on uh, when we went to that Greek, um, what's his name, that Greek island, which all the all the pretty uh, pictures they have of the beautiful Louis. I can't remember. It came back to me. Uh, but we went there and uh, we for the last day we had to check out, and our flight wasn't till like nine o'clock or something like that in the evening, nine thirty, I think it was. So we had all day. So I said, well, let's like rent a car and just drive around. So we went and look at the, uh, the sort of old, the old ruins and stuff and where they are, they found some stuff from that they dug out from volcanic action and things like that. So there's all sorts of cool, like archeology span and stuff to go and watch. Um, so I would go and look at that, but this thing had no, it was on steelies black, lost all the wheel caps, absolutely baggy as you like terrible car in virtually every way uh, and uh but it didn't need any fuel it when we got in it it had the fuel light on and uh and she said are you gonna put some fuel in it i said nah it'd be all right we're only gonna drive around the island for a bit and then drop it off at the airport and you know i don't really want to like waste time so we didn't and it beeped at me all the way around <laughs> and uh yeah got all the way there and then the handoff procedure was i mean it's, it wasn't avis can i say it was a mate of the guy who owned the, the, the place that we were renting sorted it out and he did make me sign something but I can't even remember if I got a copy of it so you know but yeah what we did was parked it in the long stay car parking outside the airport uh, leave the car unlocked and throw the keys under the passenger mat and walk away <laughs> which nice. is my favourite checkout procedure of any rental much better nice. than standing in the queue I think they should implement that yeah. at Hertz yeah. and stuff the Swiss need some of that. Oh, don't they ever? They really the do. Swiss, yeah, the Swiss need some of that. Like, Plenty so of that. 
plenty of that. But yeah. I mean, did it did it work? Yeah, I left the car. <laughs> we we went into the airport. Um, I'd never actually answered the quick fire question last week of was what was the worst car that I ever owned. Oh, and I did sit and think about it, and you know, it is a race to the bottom with the right. stuff that I've owned. You know, I'm we're, we're coming, we're ending where we came in, aren't we, with my... Uh, Your with shitty my, cars. Yeah, yeah. With my terrible cars. And so I was going to put it to you, worst car I ever owned, the blue Cortina that I sold to gypsies, oh, yeah. my dad sold to gypsies for £30. That blue Cortina that I had, that was pretty bad, wasn't it? Um, it broke down a lot. It did. Oh, yes, it was unreliable too, wasn't it? Because the orange one... It was very rusty, that orange one. You remember you opened the door one it time worked. and, and uh, it always, always, it did work. It was a bad damp starter. Yeah. So we were almost late for those A-levels when I parked it too far down the driveway and I couldn't push it up the driveway. That's right. And we had Jesus push it up the driveway and then jump in and it would roll down the street and I could jump start it easily enough because I knew it wanted to, uh, I knew it wanted to start. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe the blue Cortina Crusader Maybe that Econoline van that I had here, that E150 van that I bought from Stanford and then put like 20,000 miles on and Mark had in LA for a bit and the one where the brake pedal went to the floor. And, the, the you know, the other story I remember about that van. Um, do you remember um, one time when you visited and we were driving on California Street in San Francisco? And I know it was California Street because it's the one with the cable cars. And you know what? You know what I'm going to say? I got it stuck on that white line, didn't I? It was like wheel spin, wheel spin, wheel spin. Yeah, that was like, smoke. Like sideways down the hill. Smoke, smoke. <laughs> I just like down, sideways down the hill. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was fucking quality, yeah. yeah. No, that was a bad car. Um, but like, dude, I mean, I've got a like video. Like Capri was a terrible car, though. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It was pretty bad. But I mean, I mean of those like, three, yeah. of those three, the van worked the most. So the, yeah, I mean, like, I like the eight directional seat control the van had. So on the passenger side, you got in, you could just move it around with one finger. Because uh, only that was one a modification I made. That was a modification I made. It really? had those brown. It had the brown plastic seat first, but then Mark. Oh, I see. Dog, Is that why it was only screwed in with one screw? Mark's dogs chewed that seat up. So I was like, fuck this chewed up doggy seat. This is you felt like it felt like you were sitting in the loo when you were driving it after the dogs had chewed the seat up. <laughs> so I was like, you know, and you know where that is now? It's in Ollie's shop now, that seat. That's all that's left of that van. Because the van's gone, everything else of that van went to the great scrap man in the sky in like, I don't know, twenty sixteen or seventeen, something like that. It's it's been gone a uh, a uh, uh, a while. Um, now, but I actually don't see the mold on the on the on the window. Yeah, it, it was it was moss. Moss. Well, there was moss, and oh man, do you remember at the end it got all black widowed up because I put it in storage in a field, and I I came back they moved up. In. They recognized paid, the cool. They want to be associated. Paid up like the the methy dude that was like in the field. And, uh, you know, I just got in it and started it. I so wanted to know if it was actually going to start or if I was going to have to like hang out with the methy dude and try and jump it or some craziness like, like that. But it fired up straight away and I just drove it straight to the nearest gas station. Um, 
and I had to get uh, straight to the nearest gas station. As I was putting air in it, there was black widows crawling out from behind the gas, from behind, behind the wheel caps. Like, absolutely, like, I say plural because I did one wheel and I was like, well, maybe I just won't do that. We went to the next one. And there were two on that one. And I was like, I'm just like, ah, I'm just, uh, yeah. So then you're driving and it was full of stuff. And every time, every like little itch or every drop of sweat, you were like worried that it was a black widow down the back of your neck. That was absolutely, mind, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I put it in my storage unit, drove away. And it was only a week later that I was like, shit, I just put a Black Widow-infested vehicle in my storage place with all my other vehicles. Like, how, like, yeah. They'd probably just snuff it. Yeah, well, they did, but it took a couple of years, to be honest. I was seeing them for a couple of years because Danny used to be terrified whether I, if I went over there with Ollie because uh, the, 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 the bike can be enough to... Uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to kill really. well, her. I don't want to take, get, have an, don't want to don't want to yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've come to a natural conclusion there. Cool. All right, buddy. Um, appreciate your time, Mark. Um, I'll see you next time. Yeah, take it easy, man. <laughs>